Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Shabbat Shalom and Hak Sukkot Sameach. It's the first day of Sukkot. I have to admit, growing up, Sukkot was my favorite holiday. And that might sound a little odd, but I'll explain. My family had a tradition of camping out during Sukkot for the whole holiday. This meant more than a week on site. And there weren't any special food restrictions like you find with with Passover. So get some kosher marshmallows. We can make some s'mores. We can have hot dogs because unlike with Pesach, you can actually have real hot dog buns and burgers. This was one of my favorite memories as a kid. And I really treasured it. I really enjoyed it. What always struck me as a little odd was how the holiday came about. Most of the holidays we celebrate commemorate something huge, something significant, a huge singular event. Passover is the exodus from Egypt and the crucifixion of Messiah. Shavuot is the giving of the Torah at Sinai and the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem. Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, though not pilgrimage holidays, are about the return of Messiah and Judgment Day. Our major minor holidays, Purim and Hanukkah, each have a similar theme. They tried to kill us. We won. Let's eat. Before we dive into Sukkot, I want everyone to understand this is not a comprehensive review of the imagery, symbolism, and metaphor which surrounds Sukkot. To do that, I would need much more than the two and a half hours Rabbi Schiller has promised me. From the water to the wedding to the millennial reign, there is a lot of content here. There is a lot to study. Take Sukkot, Shemini Yetzirah, Simchat Torah, and it is far beyond the scope of what I'm talking about today. But Sukkot, I really didn't get the significance as a kid. And let's read about it in Leviticus 22, 23, 42, and 43. For a seven-day seven period, you shall live in booths. Every resident among the Israelites shall live in booths. In order that your ensuing generations should know that I had the children of Israel live in booths. When I took them out of the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. I've got a hard time with this, and something tells me I'm not the only one. We have a long holiday, seven days plus one or two at the end, because God had us live in huts for 40 years. This seems a little insignificant compared to Passover and to Shavuot. The sages say that Sukkot is called the season of our joy, and this is on the overhead. What is joyous about commemorating a 40-year campout? And they also say that the, the water-pouring ceremony, uh, never if you hadn't seen that, you'd never even seen joy in your life. And that's a bold statement. Never seen joy in your life. So what is all this joy that's around this holiday that seems to commemorate camping? Maybe we got something wrong here. Maybe Sukkot is not only about commemorating 40 years in huts. Maybe that's a misunderstanding. And there's something more to it and a more compelling message behind it. Let's go back to when Israel was first exiting Egypt in Exodus 12, verse 37. The children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot, about 600,000 on foot, the men besides the young children. Hang on a second. Israel left Ramses and went where? They happened to be in a place called Sukkot. And let's put that verse in Exodus right next to the verse in Leviticus. 
Leviticus 23, 43, in order that your assuming generation should know that I had the children of Israel live in, let's say Sukkot, instead of booths, that's the Hebrew, when I took them out of the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. The children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot, Exodus 12. Take a look at that. And remember, instead of going with the translation booths, we can use the name, as it is in Hebrew, Sukkot. And we have a different meaning. Suddenly, we're not talking about a 40-year campout. We're talking about a specific night. Israel's first night. Their first stop in the wilderness. The first step a whole nation took into an unknown, leaving behind familiar things, comfort, and what had been until relatively recently, certainty and safety. So that first night exiting Egypt, the Israelites had no plan on what to do. I don't know about y'all, but pre-cell phones, a road trip was at least a little bit planned out. You needed maps, paper maps, supplies, some thought as to where you could get more supplies. And imagine the numbers we're dealing with here. This wasn't just a family of five in a minivan. That many people exiting Egypt, the logistics are ridiculous. But there they were, and they did their absolute best to obey God and built their little huts, their sukkahs. And the rabbis have an interesting commentary on this. The rabbis and sages discuss how God saw Israel's best efforts as hilariously inadequate as they ultimately were to protect them. And they met Israel's best efforts. God met their efforts with his best efforts. And in the Talmud, it says, I made the children of Israel to reside in Sukkot, commenting in Leviticus 23, 43, were clouds of glory. The rabbis talk about how Israel and their sukkahs, doing everything they could, were met with God's efforts, his own clouds of glory, which protected the Israelites. There is even a back and forth with some of the sages in Talmud on whether we're talking about physical sukkahs at all here, or if the whole thing is a metaphor for God's glory dwelling among Israel, God brought Israel to the wilderness. And when he saw them being faithful, doing everything they could, he brought his glory down and protected them. God brought his presence to Israel despite their failings and shortcomings and met their best efforts, their stepping out in faith, their action with his clouds of glory as a foreshadowing of how the Apostle John writes, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God will dwell among his people. Please note something here that the rabbis are discussing, that God did not bring down his clouds of glory until the Israelites were doing their best efforts in a frustrating and scary circumstance. And this is an important point. The mixed multitude that left Egypt had chosen to leave and step out into an unknown. Egypt was a comfortable place. And many of them complained about this later. We had fish and leeks and onions. We had good food, relative comfort. We had free Wi-Fi, good coffee and avocado toast. And I've got friends back in Egypt. I'd love to see you again, not over a Zoom call. All that longing for Egypt is going to cost you is your soul. It's going to cost you your citizenship in the promised land and the kingdom of heaven. Every generation has to grapple with this in different ways. Remember, that's the command. You tell your children when we, when I came out of Egypt, every generation owns that. 
If each generation were actually worse than the last, we should have hit rock bottom long, long ago. These things shift and they flow and they ebb and they often look different over a generation or two. An age of social media leads to a tremendous amount of envy where we spend our time looking at what other people do and desire to be like them. It is uncommon to spend time thinking about who God wants us to be. Everyone wants to be in the promised land, but few want to endure the time in the wilderness. How many times in your life have you had a challenge present itself to you and you backed down because it was going to be really hard? Or it would make you uncomfortable. Are you willing to suffer to become who God wants you to be? Are you willing to leave Egypt, actually leave Egypt, and give living in the wilderness your all? Because that is where you encounter God. That is where you have his clouds of glory. Now, you might be thinking, this sounds a little bit sadistic. Some kind of self-actualizing, self-help nonsense about bucking up and doing the hard thing. And it's just words. It's easy to say these words. Suffer a lot and you'll encounter God. Is that it? No, that's not it. That's just the beginning. It is a myth that God will only grow you through suffering. You need to be willing to do much more than suffer if you want to grow. God will use community, teaching and study, devotions, relationships, and intimacy. If you cannot first be willing to work through suffering and embrace hardship, your growth will be stunted at best. Imagine someone wanting to train weights and compete in strongman competitions, but never wants to be sore from a day of training. Or someone that wants to compete in marathons, but never wants to be out of breath from running. Ridiculous. Muscle is built by breaking down muscle and it growing back stronger. If you want to make your body stronger, you have to do something to your body to signal that it isn't currently strong enough. And this process rarely feels good. The real question here is, do we see this in other places in the Bible? And is this, this is what would really destroy my argument. If we didn't see God consistently working with people through really tough things and difficult circumstances. If we see God generally reach down to someone and give them the ancient equivalent of, hey, Carl, or Carl, good work binge watching that Netflix series, log some more time on Instagram, watch some TikTok videos and door dash some Chipotle. You're doing great. Well, what do we see? Let's take a look at Abraham. Genesis 12. God called Abraham, then Abram or Avram, to leave his father's house, his community, support, and everything he knew, and journey to a new land. What is the first thing Avram encountered? Famine. Then his wife Sarai was abducted by Pharaoh's men. Genesis 13. Avraham and Lot cannot get along, so Avraham has to separate from his own family. Genesis 14. Lot is abducted by an enemy kingdom, and Abraham goes on a daring rescue mission to save him. Yes, Abraham was wealthy, and he had lots of resources. Would any of us want to go through his journey? It's easy to read about these people and say, wow, I'd like to be like this person. Would you really want to suffer the way they did? And I really doubt many of us would have that kind of strength, I'm sad to say, 
And as far as going through what Avraham did, you can't because that's what God had for Abraham. He left his home country, endured famine, hostile rulers, war, territorial and family disputes. And that's the first three chapters about him. Abraham did not live a life without challenge and suffering. He lived by giving God his 100% and trusting that where it wasn't enough or his actions were the wrong choice, God would take care of the result. Abraham knew that genuine faith in God does not make you lazy. It drives you to do your best. It was faith in God that drew Israel out of Egypt and to build the best little hut, the little sukkah that they could. Why else do you think the first place they stopped is named Sukkot? Huts. It's descriptive. Let's take a look at Jacob's life. Jacob did not encounter God directly until he was on the run from Esau. He did not directly encounter God again until he was returning to confront and reconcile with Esau. God spoke to Jacob before he left and said, hey, it's time to go. That is nowhere near as direct as a wrestling match. The ladder to heaven with the angels was on the way to Laban's house. God provided Jacob with direction and blessing and nothing more while he was there. Let's be honest about Jacob coming back to confront Esau. And Jacob found himself alone and ended up wrestling with God. What would most people do today? What would most of us have done? Probably either run away from the obstacle, which in this case was God himself, or immediately launch into prayer. Lord, please remove this obstacle yourself from before me. Can you imagine Jacob praying to God that God would get out of his way? You have no reason to receive God's protection and endurance if you will not first stomach the hardship to be in a position to need God's protection and to need God's endurance. Yaakov was pushing himself to his limit, and God knew it. So what did God do? He wrestled with him. He gave him exactly what he needed at that moment. Abraham obeyed God's voice and went where God told him to go. His life was not without hardship, but it was fulfilling. And yes, Abraham made mistakes. Abraham made mistakes that would get him run out of most congregations today. While it was a different time and culture, people who are used to taking it easy and going the path of least resistance generally don't like it when a high performer like Abraham or Jacob comes around. Why? Because you're suddenly reminded of who you could be. Let's get away from the patriarchs and jump to someone who went through a different kind of suffering. Job. Job's suffering is unique from most in the Bible because Job had no clue what was happening to him or why. He had lived a good life. He had done no wrong, and yet he still came under attack. Job had done nothing wrong and yet encountered tremendous hardship. Job's story flies right in the face of a prosperity gospel, by the way. Job 1.1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. Job. That man was blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. Could that be said of many of us? That's a high standard right there, and we're in the first verse of the first chapter. God let many horrible things happen to Job, and none of it was fair. Job 2.6, so the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. Job's story is so important for many of us to understand. All disease is not because of a sin in your life. Sometimes you are enduring hardship 
because God has allowed you to be tried and tested. Who here could stomach what Job went through and not sin? An important message we have at the end is that God rewarded Job's faith, integrity, and character. In the end, Job is rewarded for the unjust suffering he endured without sin. Job 42.12, the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. If we did not serve a loving and gracious God, encountering trials and tribulations would be awful. If we did not serve a loving and gracious God, we could never step out of Egypt and into the wilderness. We can't ever forget that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Of course, there are times that we struggle and have challenges. And at times, we will fail. Most of the great people in the Bible failed, but that's not why they're great. They're great because they didn't let their failures and mistakes destroy or define them. We will all encounter hard times, tribulation. Remember the words of the Master Yeshua. These things have I spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. Now let's not forget about King David. He is someone of tremendous ups and downs in his life. And also tremendous flaws. But he wasn't always King David. Before King David was King David, he was disregarded shepherd boy David. Then he was giant killer David. Then he was warrior David. Then he was fugitive outlaw David. Then he was King David. Then he was adulterer murderer David. Then he was repentant David. His journey continued with a son starting an uprising to overthrow him and another later competing for the throne. Looking at David's life, the ups and downs are shocking. He went through such stresses, successes, lows, and had tremendous wins. And let's do a thought exercise for a moment. What would happen in today's society if David were instead, say, president and did what he did with Bathsheba and Uriah? Can you imagine the overpowering calls to resign and the enormous media circus that would ensue? I hope that for most of us, what defines David is not the extent of his mistakes and the depths of his depravity. It is that he got back up from his failures, repented, and got back onto the righteous path. He remained a man of God, a a man God wanted to use, a man who wanted to glorify God, even if it was through his failures. And from this failure, we have Psalm 51. David kept in his heart the mindset that the Israelites had as they left Egypt in journey to Sukkot. And as David wrote in Psalm 34, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Whatever you're going through, don't forget God sees it. God knows your struggles. Other people might be able to harm your body, smear your reputation, but they cannot slander you to our Father in heaven. Because our Father in heaven is the righteous judge who abhors feet that run to do violence, and he hates gossip and slander. As the prophet Isaiah wrote, Hear me, you who know what is right. You people who have taken my instruction to heart, do not fear the reproach of mere mortals 
or be terrified by their insults. I have a scary thought experiment for each of you. I want you all to imagine that you're dead. You approach the throne of God, and what is it that you find? I'll tell you a thought that terrifies me. God shows me who I could have been. Not if I'd lived longer, but if I had lived better and been stronger. That he shows me the people I could have shared the gospel with, but didn't. That he shows me the people I could have helped, but didn't want to make the effort. The relationships I could have repaired, but didn't want to put forth the effort. Or I was too proud. The people I could have influenced for the better, but instead of being the light of Messiah in their lives, I was selfish and mean. And most, if not all, of my prospective failures stem from an avoidance of discomfort. Whether it's a sin I committed or a sin of omission... I didn't want to suffer and take a more difficult path. So I took what was easiest. I imagine God would show many of us we're a better version of ourselves. One more ready to be used for God's purposes. Just needed to be, we just need to be okay with being more uncomfortable. If you live a life afraid of what others think of you, You're running from discomfort, and a lot of that discomfort is social. If you're afraid of what others think of you, you're afraid to try new things, exert yourself and acquire new skills. You're nervous that you might look silly or you don't look cool. Then if you wait a few years and you want to know who the biggest loser in the world is, all you will need to do is look in the mirror. And that's not to other men. It's to God. You will never be who God wants you to be if you lower yourself to the expectations of others. You cannot be a follower of Messiah and care about impressing people. Imagine getting to the end of your life and seeing the person you could have become, the things you could have accomplished, the lives you could have changed if you hadn't avoided being uncomfortable, if you had been willing to suffer. Most of us live our entire lives and never ask God who he wants us to be. And because we want life to be easy, we want an easy path that is pleasurable. We never ask God who he wants us to be. And we stay in Egypt where it's familiar and it's comfortable. We don't want to journey out of Egypt, having no idea what's happening, and find ourselves in the elements, building a little hut to sleep in. Unsure if a scorpion is going to sting me in my sleep or if wild animals are going to devour my children. No! Stay comfortable. Holiday and Express. What keeps us from taking the hard path? Where's the disconnect here? And that hard path is what often leads us to genuine happiness in God. And we spend a lot of time seeking pleasure, thinking we're pursuing happiness. And those two things are often opposite. Any parent knows that. Raising kids is fulfilling It is rarely pleasurable. What prevents us from taking the hard path? The first thing is our own comfort. Abraham would have been more comfortable in Terah's household. Job would have been, could have easily cursed God for his troubles. David could have been angry with God for his hardship. The disciples and apostles could have walked away from their calling to normal lives. 
What does being uncomfortable look like? It looks like leaving Egypt and camping out in the wilderness. It looks like offering to do something when you're not entirely sure how to do it. It means you might do something and make a mistake in front of others and end up a little embarrassed. You'll live, I assure you. This is why it is so important that we not have an overly critical environment. If you're the person that is regularly criticizing every little detail, do you think that your critical spirit is inspiring others to stand up and volunteer to do something? Or do you think you're sending a signal, don't you dare get up and do something unless you're an expert and a professional? Learn to encourage other people. Don't be the person that is the reason someone doesn't try something, the reason someone doesn't sing, the reason someone doesn't dance, the reason someone doesn't pick up an instrument, the reason someone doesn't help, the reason someone doesn't speak. Don't be the reason that someone sits there and doesn't want to make something of themselves because they want to avoid a critical spirit. I don't know how many professionals any of you think we have here, but I'll tell you that I am not one of them. There is nothing in my life that I have arrived at and no mistake that I am too good to make. If you find yourself declining offers to help, offers to participate in services or extracurriculars, then you need to do some serious spiritual introspection on who you are and what you are doing here. Would you have left Egypt with the Israelites or would you have stayed? Do you avoid learning and trying new things because you're afraid that you won't look great at it right away? I've got news for everyone here. Very few things in life worth doing are proficiently learned in a short amount of time. You are rewarded in public for the things you practice in private for years. If you cling to your own comfort, your own desire, and never be embarrassed or frustrated, wanting to make sure you never make a public error, you will never become the person God wants you to be. Your own desire and comfort will lead you to a spiritual stagnation and you will die in Egypt. So what take, what prevents us from taking the hard path? The first is our own comfort and the second is our own success. Imagine for a moment that the following list is a few of your life's accomplishments. Air Force Tactical Air Controller, U.S. Navy SEAL, Army Ranger School, Guinness Book of World Records for pull-ups, 4,030 in 17 hours, over 60 ultra-marathons, triathlons, and ultra-triathlons, and a published author. This is not a made-up person. This guy is named David Goggins. I think most of us would look at a list like this and think it might take a few lifetimes for most of us to accomplish this, if ever. During an interview the other year, this guy said that his next thing, he's still going, he's not dead, was to be a Woodlands firefighter and joining a hotshot crew. These are the guys that jump out of airplanes or helicopters and fight fires on the ground in the middle of nowhere. The work is crazy. It's insane. It is very dangerous. And these people are horribly underpaid. When I saw their hourly wage, I asked, on top of what? I assure you, nobody does this work for the money. The interesting part is that in this interview David Goggins was giving, he discussed how people can be victims of their own success and stop growing. And with a resume like that, most people would say, 
Look how accomplished I am. I have nothing to prove to anyone. And he has nothing to prove to anyone. He is pursuing what his own talents will do for other people. You get used to being the accomplished person who is an expert in a field. And you never go outside that field. Because then you're no expert. And you might be new at something. Even with this resume, David had to get used to being the new guy again. Learning a new craft. Where being the new guy means you have a 20-year-old talking down to you because they're senior over you. Hey, you, go pick that stuff up and come with us. Hey, who are you talking to? Do you know who I am? You got to set that aside. Welcome to being the new guy again. You don't know anything about fighting fires in the middle of a forest. You were just a Navy SEAL, David. (laughs) And this strongly touches on what stops many of us when we're trying to do God's work from being the person who would have walked out of Egypt with all of Israel. We get so hung up on who we were that we cannot pursue God's plan for who we could be. We are so terrified of being new or perceived as someone who is not an expert that we let that stop us from experiencing the life God could have for us if we would just leave Egypt and trust him. This would have been Abraham telling God, no, thanks, God. I'm better off in my father's household. Besides, shouldn't I honor my father? Or David saying, no, thanks. I'm a great shepherd. I don't want to go do new things. And that sounds dangerous. I've spent so much time getting good at this shepherding thing. If you've seen the series, The Chosen, a very well done series on Yeshua's ministry, we see this very strongly in how Nicodemus's character is portrayed. He sees what he is called to. And it terrifies him. He doesn't want to go where God is directing him because of his current success and the respect he would lose. What prevents us from taking the hard path? First is our own comfort. The second is our own success. And the third is saying, I'll pray about it. Let's be clear. We should bring everything in our lives to God in prayer. Nobody here is debating that. Our lives should be full of prayer. Rav Shul, the Apostle Paul, writes about this in Philippians. What I do take issue with is how I see this phrase so often used and abused. Saying, I'll pray about it, is generally a dodge. What we really mean is, I don't want to do what you're suggesting, which probably makes me lazy. And we do all have the same 168 hours in a week. But I want to appear spiritual. Am I telling you no? Because then you can't argue with me because I prayed about it. And it's God who said no, not me. I hate to break it to everyone here and everyone listening, but the the inclinations and desires of your mind and your heart are not God. Your feelings are not God. Many of us want to follow our emotions and desires and then call ourselves spiritual. Some of the most preposterous statements I've heard in my life were prefaced with the phrase, The Spirit told me, do not do this. God has not given you permission to be lazy. God has not told you to not engage in a community, to not participate, to not read his word, to not worship, and he has not told you to not pray. I assure you, God did not tell you to avoid volunteering, to avoid helping, to avoid contributing, to avoid participating in your own shul or your own community or with your own family. That is your own fear and laziness at best. 
our fleshly disposition will not lead us to follow God into the wilderness as the ancient Israelites did. Your flesh will tell you to stay in Egypt. It will lead you to destruction. Your flesh will lead you to pleasure, but not happiness, the happiness that a life in God will bring. Your flesh will not lead you to a place where God's clouds of glory descend upon you to protect you. I pray that each of you hears from the master on that last day when you do pass. Well done, faithful servant. Because you did the will of your father in heaven and didn't live a life following your own desires, wanting to be comfortable. Living a life of fear is not going to get you to the throne and hearing those words. And I pray that we are all able to say, as Rav Shul, the Apostle Paul said in Second Timothy, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. Would you please join me in prayer when the music team come up? Venus Shavat Shemayim, our Father in heaven. You are holy and you call us to be as you. Holy. Lord, I ask that our lives would be set apart to your purposes, that we would live lives yielded to you. Lord, I ask that we would not be caught up in the pleasures of this world and miss the joy that comes from being your servant. Lord, I ask that everyone here would examine their lives honestly and soberly, that we would all see ways we can be better husbands and wives fathers and mothers, sons and daughters, brothers and sisters. Avinu Malkenu, our father, our king, I ask that you would do as you did for the Israelites. Shield us where our efforts are insufficient. Lord, I ask that when the hut we build in obedience to you is not sufficient to the task, that you would cover us in your clouds of glory, your holiness, your presence, so that what is written by your prophet would be fulfilled. No weapon formed against you will prosper. On this festival of Sukkot, I ask that we would experience a peace of your kingdom. For you are God who is with us. Your son dwells among us. Your spirit resides within us. Father, I ask that you would take our lives and let them be fully yielded to your will and your purposes. Being diligent students of our master and Messiah, Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.